Ooh, I'm not on. Now I'm good. I want to thank those of you who encouraged me last week um, with the lesson, and I was able to deliver that uh, Thursday at uh, Lipscomb's Summer Celebration, so I appreciate that very much. I had good feedback from that class, and it's encouraged me to think further about this idea of joining the resistance, and um, if you if you didn't get a chance to hear last week's sermon, uh, that is online. And uh, I think there's some other thoughts we can add to this in the next few weeks. Besides, the idea of a resistance, that seems like a fitting theme right before Independence Day. Taking a stand, being the resistance, declaring an independence. It still happens in the world. It happened on June 23, not very long ago, um, when uh, we had a... uh, There we go. Uh, The Brexit. Brexit. That means that Britain decided to leave the European Union. Brexit. I didn't know what that was at first. Had to look it up. It's a hashtag. It sounds like a a European breakfast cereal. What are you having for breakfast? Brexit, you know, fortified with vitamin UK. Um, The... the, um, and, and this, this vote is leading to uh, a lot of worry, a lot of concern. I've been in communication with my friends over there. They're, they're concerned about this. Nobody knows what it means. It means that the United Kingdom may not be so united anymore. Scotland may make its own exit in a couple of years from the United Kingdom. And so everybody's trying to call that Skexit, which sounds bad. I said instead they should call it Scott Free. And... Uh, See, they ought to ask me these things. And, uh, but now you've got uh, Spexit, Spain, once out, Frexit, France, once out, and Grexit, Greece, once out. Of course, then again, you've got the problem, too, of the different countries in the European Union wondering if some of them are going to vote and say, can we get rid of a few? Because if we could, then, and I wouldn't want to speculate on who that might be, but... Um, 240 years ago, as we've said, we had our own little exit, and some people think it was called Am-Exit, the American exit. No, they had to spell everything out in those days. It was called the American Express. And so now you know the rest of the story, okay? Only about half of you here get that don't leave Britain without it line. Younger people are like, what's that mean? Uh, if only I had a picture of John Hancock as Carl Malden, then it would, yeah, about three-quarters of you are saying, what does that mean? Uh, moving on. Uh, there's any number of separatist movements in the world. When you're thinking about this and independence, this is a map of all the proposed separatist movements that could happen right now. Everyone thought Brexit wouldn't happen. They thought it was just this silly vote. They thought it was just a, a gamble by David Cameron. They just thought that, well, you know, this will all, it's, we'll talk about it and it'll all go away. Well, now we live in a very different world where people say, I don't know, maybe people really can separate and break away. I mean, now anything's possible. 240 years ago, we showed the world how to do that when America broke away from the British Empire. But then everybody sort of forgot about it after a few few hundred years. And now we're back in that world again. Living in Texas, we always heard that Texas, if it wanted to, could establish its independence. 
because it used to be an independent republic. And you always hear this, uh, and I've never verified this, but it's like, you know it's in Texas's constitution that they can become an independent nation again whenever they want. There you go. Some, some people are wanting to have a vote and say, can we vote to, you know, move them out? Karen's students, they would say things to, when she would teach, uh, she was teaching in Texas, and they would, she would say, what country do you live in? Texas. She'd say, no, that's the state. What state do you live in? Abilene. And, uh, and, you know, the rest of the United States was a foreign country to them. So who knows, in our lifetime, you may see it. I want you thinking about this because in every separatist movement, there's always some idea of independence. We want to be independent from those people. Texas says, we're a whole other country. We can be independent from everybody else. Britain says, we're independent. We want to be independent from the European Union. And if you go back 240 years ago, in the Declaration of Independence, it says these words, when in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them. Then a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. There's the idea of an independence, of a breaking away, of dissolving political bands or political bonds with a people. We see that in the Declaration of Independence. And, 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 and think about this, because now, now, watch, I'm going to create a problem for myself, okay? I'm, going, I'm letting you know, this is the warning, I'm going to create some trouble here, okay? Trouble that I'm going to have, it's sort of like I'm Houdini, I'm going to put myself in a straitjacket and see if I can get out. We'll see if it's successful. Aren't you in for a show? Um, here you go. We cherish, and rightly so, we cherish documents like the Declaration of Independence, and we cherish God's Word, rightly so. In the Declaration of Independence, you find these words. Governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. It is the right of the people to alter or abolish it. That's the Declaration of Independence. In Romans 13, you find these words, and we'll go back to the King James Version, which would have, you, they would have had at about the same time. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever, therefore, resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. Now, it's safe to say that we cherish both the Declaration of Independence, rightly so, and God's Word. We honor it even greater, rightly so. So what about this dilemma? And I'm not going to call it a seeming dilemma. That just, that just indicates, you know, well, it's not really a dilemma. It just seems like a dilemma. Hmm? You've got two different thoughts there. I'm sorry, right? You've got two different thoughts being proposed there. One is this 
this rather unique, innovative thought that comes out of the Declaration of Independence that governments are derived by men. In, in, in the 1700s, the late 1700s even, that is an incredibly novel and radical thought that governments could be created by men. Before that, you had verses like Romans 13, which dates back over over. 1,700 years before that, something like that. You've got 17 centuries of this thought being around. And the idea that the kings and the rulers are ordained by God, so you do not question that. What do we do with this dilemma? So, here I am creating a problem, and I'm creating a problem because I think sometimes we get a bit casual and we don't think about what these things mean for us as disciples of Jesus Christ living in the 21st century when things like Brexits and uh, other earth-shattering political economic things are happening, and then we've got our own election coming up. I want us to feel some of these problems because I think too often we opt for the, the easy way, but it's, a, it's not a good way, of separating these things out. We become dualists and we have a secular life and we have a spiritual life. And so as long as those two don't cross and intermix with each other, then we're okay and everybody's okay. Don't you believe it? That wasn't how God intended for us to live in the world. We cannot compartmentalize these things. Now, you read these two statements and you have to wonder, is it contradictory then to be a Christian and an independent American? Have I just ruined the 4th of July for you? Now you're going to be saying, wait a second, what if it was all a big mistake 240 years ago? Do we continue the sin of our ancestors? How do we seriously reconcile these statements in what are foundational writings for us? Now, if we rightly decide that the word of God stands above the declaration of independence that's good but then what do we do with our feeling about government and is it a cop-out to just twist Romans 13 and make it say something else what's a, a fair question though would be what's being said in Romans 13 what's really being communicated okay there's some background here let me give you five pieces of background first of all Paul Paul is writing to Christians who live in Rome, who live under an emperor. An emperor who's not the greatest emperor they've ever seen, Nero. Not even remembered historically as the greatest emperor. But he's writing out of a background. Paul would have read scripture. He knew his scripture very well. And he would have known Daniel chapter 4. Paul then is communicating this prophetic vision of God as the highest authority the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings. We understand the of part in that, right? It means the Lord over all other lords, the King over all other kings. Sometimes you could have in the ancient world, and I guess you can still have that today, you can have structures where one authority is higher than another, where you have a king who appoints other lesser kings. In Daniel, you have this long-standing tradition of the prophets, that God was the king above all other rulers on earth. 
So in Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar, the great and mighty king of Babylon, is humbled by God and he writes a letter to all sovereigns and monarchs and kings and says that he learned that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth. You have this idea communicated by a a Gentile king, a Babylonian king, that God is the highest king. And his message in Daniel's uh, writing is that all authorities and rulers everywhere should pay respect and honor God. Okay, that's number one. Number two, allegiance to God surpasses allegiance to nations and rulers. This idea is tested and proven again over and over again throughout Scripture, and you see it in Acts 5, verse 29, among others. In that verse, you have a religious and political, and by the way, we we tend to separate religious authority and political authority. In the ancient world, they don't do that. They come together. They're one and the same. But you have the Sanhedrin. And the disciples have been called before the Sanhedrin, and they say, you know, ask yourselves, which should we do? Should we honor God or honor men? But you have this idea showing up in in other places as well, not just in in Acts. Uh, You have, for example, in, in Daniel, it's also in Daniel, that Daniel and his friends will not honor the decree of the king that says to bow down before the idol. Because they will worship God and only God. And it's going to cost them. They may be put to death by putting into the furnace. But they accept it. And God chooses to save them. However, they make a statement. They say, but if not, then we will serve God and serve God alone. Okay, three more backgrounds to to, to help us understand Romans 13. Paul is writing with a sense that there is an order to things, an order in which authorities are in submission or should submit to him, and then the people submit to those authorities. This is a general principle. Paul is assuming a general principle, a general truth that should be true. And you see that general principle established throughout Scripture in different places where it says, every knee shall bow, And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You're going to see that. By the way, we've been talking about Romans 13. You'll find that statement in Romans 14, verse 11. And you'll find it in Philippians, chapter 2, verse 10. Paul, in two letters, says, The day is coming when every knee shall confess, where every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, what does that mean? Is that worship? Yes. But what do you do? Think of, the, of, of your history. What do you do when you go before a king? You kneel before a king. You confess to a king. that he, you, you swear to a king your allegiance. You pledge your allegiance. Now these two statements, and you'll find this in Revelation as well, say that the day is coming when that will happen. Christ does not become king when you and I do that. Sometimes we hear language that says, why don't you make Christ king over your heart? He already is king over your heart. It's just a question of whether or not you accept it. You can live in rebellion or you can accept that. He's a, God has made him sovereign. God has exalted Christ 
above all names, above all authorities. So that's an established fact. In Ephesians 6, Paul understands that this has been God's plan, was, to, was through Christ to establish him above every power. Not just powers on earth, but powers in the heavens. And so God has exalted him. And now the question is, do things fit into that order the way they're supposed to? Paul is assuming that governments can fit into that order. Fourth thing, he's saying, Paul is working out of a concept that he would have read in Jeremiah where we can contribute to harmony and peace. In Jeremiah 29, Jeremiah says to the Babylonians, or to the the captives, the exiles in Babylon, people who are not in their home country, people who have been removed from their home country, people who are living in the land of their conqueror, and he says, seek the prosperity of the city where you live. Really? But these are our conquerors. Aren't we supposed to be the resistance force? Aren't we supposed to resist them? Aren't we supposed to rebel? Not like that. But you're going to be in Babylon, he says, for quite some time. You might as well plant gardens. You might as well settle in. You might as well do well because many of you are not going to be leaving Babylon. But your children will. Your grandchildren will. And God's got a plan. It goes beyond that. Sometimes we're so caught up in the moment, in the right now, that we forget about the future. Sometimes we focus so much on the past that we forget about the future. Just just imagine that you were living in the 1700s, and you knew that the Revolutionary War was coming. What decisions would you make if you knew the future? I know it's a bit of science fiction, right? But you would know some things. You would know who wins. You would know who prevails. You know that certain risks would be worth it. You know that that there wouldn't be an uncertainty for you. That there would be something that would happen. Well, let me take it out of science fiction. Don't we know the future? Don't we know something about the future? Hasn't something about the future been revealed to us? Don't we know that every other kingdom on this world will not ultimately stand, but the kingdom of Christ is eternal? Don't we know that? If we know that, then what decisions do we make now? If we know that, then what decisions? Where should we be living? Where should we be investing ourselves? Final point, Jesus says there is another kingdom. That comes from John 18, verse 36. Pilate says, don't you know I have the authority to set you free? And that's where the Romans 13 teaching comes in. This is probably where Paul got it. And he says, you have no authority except what God's given you. He says, my followers, my kingdom is not of this world. Otherwise, my followers would fight for me in that way. But there's a different way that we put up a resistance. There's a different way that we overcome the powers in this world. Many of you were uh, impressed by this slide last week, and I thank you for that. These are the words of C.S. Lewis who said, we live in enemy-occupied territory. That's what this world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed and is calling us to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. This is a metaphor. That sabotage that C.S. Lewis is talking about, it's not blowing up bridges and taking up a sniper position, tearing down plants that build war machines. 
In fact, this part about sabotage makes no sense unless you first understand this part about the rightful king. Because otherwise, our forms of sabotage, even if we claim to be doing it in the name of God, our sabotage will just be our political agenda wrapped up in a ribbon with a bow with Jesus Christ's name on it. And and he does not accept that sort of forced endorsement. Until we understand that there is a rightful king that God has exalted, then we understand the different lives that we ought to live. Lives that will, in many ways, much of the sabotage that we will do, will contribute to good in this world. It will contribute to God's peace in this world. Now, I don't know about you, but a people who live non-anxiously, now think about that, that there would be a people today who can live non-anxiously, with this confidence that Christ is coming back, with this confidence that there is a kingdom, that this world will be made new in ways that will surprise us, a people who live like that without anxiety, now that's about the most radical thing I can think of. What do you think? There's radicals everywhere. There's separation movements everywhere. There's independence movements everywhere. There's people taking up arms. There's people preparing for doomsday. You know what? There's so much of that now. They've even got TV shows and reality shows about that. It's just not surprising anymore. But a people who are so committed to living peacefully that they have a vision, a greater vision, God's vision for life in this world. Now, that would be radical. That would be a type of sabotage. But sabotage doesn't make sense until you first understand what it means to have a rightful king. That's also going to mean that in this world, you and I will have to begin to see ourselves as exiles, like the people in Babylon. It's hard. When you're invested, when you, when you live in a country like the United States of America, it's hard to see yourself as an exile. Now, some of us maybe who've been around a few years, are starting to see that, you know, there are some things changing. I feel more and more like a stranger in my own country, okay? fact of the matter is, at some level, we ought to always be feeling like strangers in our own country because our ultimate goal is not this country. It may be a great country. It may be a wonderful country. It may get better. It may get worse. But this isn't our ultimate destination. Peter brings that idea forth in his letter when he writes to people who live in their different countries and their different cities and states and he says dear friends i urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul it's not just the political structures that we live in as exiles but it's the culture that we live in as exiles And he says those cultures may engage in things that are sinful, that that don't fit into God's will. They may hold values that are not God's values. But you are exiles. You're, You're foreigners there. You're strangers to that. And he will repeat this idea of living in exile and what it means to live in exile. Um. I've got some questions then to wrap this up. Questions for people who know that we need to live as exiles in this nation. Now I want you to take these down. I want you to think about these. First of all, where is your first allegiance? Now be honest about this. Are we dualist? 
Do we give our political selves to America and we give our spiritual selves to, to God? Do we give all of our life and our wealth and our service to America or to our, maybe, maybe not even to America, but to our political party or to our definition of good government or our desires for the governments of this land? Do we give our physical selves to that, but our spiritual self, we're giving it to God? Such dualism is never a good thing in Scripture. It's never a good thing. We're going to start a study of 1 John tonight, and he'll say, look, there's two paths. There's light, there's darkness. Pick one. Well, can my body go down the path of darkness? Because sometimes I have to work with people in the darkness, you know, and I have to do things over there in that world, and, but my, the rest of me go down the light. No, the answer is no, you can't. Where's your first allegiance? Where do you put your first allegiance? In Scripture, the Apostle Paul writes, our citizenship is in heaven. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. Our battle is against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Ask ourselves, do we attach our particular politics to Christianity? So that this party or that party, the Republican Party is more Christian than the Democratic Party, or the Democratic Party is more righteous than the Republican Party, or, or some other third party is a better way, or this nation is more righteous than that nation. Do we attach our political preferences to Christianity? If so, I want to suggest, and this is just stuff we need to think about, we need to talk about, but if we do that, it is dangerously close to idolatry. Be careful with that. Because we will get stirred up and we will get worried about what happens in politics. Second thing I want to ask you. Do we pray for our leaders or do we curse them? Now be honest about this. Because sometimes we want it our way. Or sometimes we're just given over to the anger that's in our culture. I'm going to go ahead and confess to you that I don't pray for the governments, the governments that I live under like I should. And it's a bad idea for me to watch cable news. When I was a kid, I remember my grandfather, my great-grandfather, my grand, great-grandfather, he, he, used to, he used to argue with Dan Rather. And, and, and we always thought that, you know, he's getting a little up there, maybe he's losing it. Now I know how he feels, you know. Instead, I find myself arguing with Anderson Cooper and Sean Hannity, you know, and so I'm like, they, they can't hear me. And, uh, and I could spend all day writing emails and stuff like that. And you know what? I'd be distracted from the, guy, the life that God wants me to live. Now, that's me. That's me. If you go out here today and the only thing that you get from this is, preacher said I ought to cut off the cable news. Okay, you're missing the point. All right? You may be fine with it. I don't know. I'm just saying... That if I'm going to resist the anxiety and the way that God, that the way that the devil works in my heart against God's ways, that's something I have to avoid. It's not good. And I'm not contributing to peace in this world, and I'm not really part of the peaceful sabotage. We're told in Romans 13 to pray. Because governments in a good ordered world have an obligation and if they don't meet their obligation god's going to hold them accountable for that and the people who serve government and some of those are our neighbors people right here that's some of you you have an obligation in that and god can bless you for that but if our first allegiance is to god 
then out of humility and respect, we will pray for them. But what if those governments aren't good? Didn't, didn't Christ teach us in the Sermon on the Mount to pray only for our best friends? Now, you know that's not true. He taught us even to pray for those who despise us, those who are against us, those who are opposed to us, to pray for our enemies. Finally, I want to ask you, are we as anxious as everybody else? Are you as anxious as everyone else? Because we get caught up in our political preferences, because we get caught up in our regional preferences, because we get caught up in our politics or our race, we can get just as anxious as everyone else. Because we get caught up in the economy, we can get as anxious as everybody else. And we forget what ought to really give us identity. It's not that we're not Americans or we're not this or we're not that. We can move and live within those things but where does our identity ultimately come from see if our identity comes from anything else then we're putting our identity in something that is uncertain i told you we know the future i'm going to predict the future for you because we've got in the next four months we're talking about brexit but in the next four months we could be going through some of this ourselves Some of you are going to want some sermons as we get closer to November. Why? Because there's going to be a lot of anxiety. Why? Because there's a lot of uncertainty. I mean, depending on who wins, who's going to happen? I'm going to take away the uncertainty. I'm going to tell you right now who's going to win the presidential election in November. I can do it, and I will be absolutely right. It will be Donald Trump, or it'll be Hillary Clinton. (laughs) Now, there you go. Without a doubt, it will be Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump. I tell you right now, right here, there you go. No more uncertainty, so stop worrying. Look, it's a little humor to point out, and I'm going to tell you, I was, even, I was even thinking, you know, I wonder which one of them I should put out first, because if I put one out over the other. See, that's the kind of stuff that's going to stir us up. This is going to happen in November, and you're going to vote or you may not vote. But it's going to happen. But the lordship of Christ isn't in question. That's not uncertain. And you and I, where is our first allegiance? Who do we pledge our allegiance to first? Now, we can be as anxious as everyone else about it. Or we can have a hope that are going to make other people ask us, why do you remain hopeful? We can say amen, we can set our hearts on all of this on Sunday, but in four months we might find ourselves as anxious as everyone else in an election that could even get nastier than we imagine, or it might be better, I don't know. But all because of a vote. It happened in Britain, they weren't expecting it. People are really upset in that country because they feel strongly one way or another, and what happened there could happen here. The real question is for us, though, Not what's going to happen in all of this. And and you and I don't need to be worried about trying to manage that or control that or sway that. Asking God, God, would you make it work this way? Or would you make it work this way? Or would you make sure this happens? Romans 13 says God's got this figured out. God has got this settled. 
He knows what he's doing. What you and I need to do is pledge our allegiance to him and have faith and have a kind of hope that would be radical. Because he's saying to us in the words of the old song, this world's not your home. You're going to sing this song. And maybe it's a good affirmation. I don't know. I think this song fell out of favor for a few years. This world is not my home. I'm just passing through. Mark Llewellyn has told us the history on some of these songs. Did you ever do that one, Mark? It's a, it's a, no, nobody really knows who wrote it. They think it may have come from um, African-American spirituals. And you know, this song, when it's in the mouths of the poor, when it's in the mouths of those who are maybe going from the Dulce Bowl in Oklahoma out to California to find prosperity, and, and it's just, it, you know, they're living in poverty. When this, when this is in the, the, being sung by slaves who have no political status, that it's, you know, it's a good, comforting world. This world is not my home. But for those of us who can get very privileged and get very anxious when things aren't working our way, then in those cases, maybe this song is a bit of a corrective that reminds us, hey, you're exiles. Resist the anxiety and remember, this world, you're just renting it. This world is not our home. As we stand and sing this song, I want to invite each and every one of you to know the kind of hope that we can have because there's a certainty in what God is doing through Jesus Christ. And if we have that kind of hope and we live it out, people will ask you, tell me about the hope you seem to have. They'll ask you. Let's stand. Let's sing this song.